0: talking the talk podcast where we'll be exploring items of automotive technology and their journey into mass production. I'm Kevin Reed, the founder of Ireland Made, where we celebrate stories of Irish transport past and present and this is our podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my co-host, automotive engineering consultant Mike Keane. Mike's consultancy delivers bespoke and sustainable transport solutions, and previously Mike has led vehicle development programs for Ford, Williams Formula One Advanced Engineering, Nissan, Jaguar, Land Rover and Aston Martin. Mike has also worked on projects as diverse as hybrid supercars to off-road electric vehicles, but what is most impressive for me, Mike worked on the James Bond movie Spectre and he worked on the baddies car, the Jaguar CX75. In each episode, we're going to be examining vehicles that range from the 1921 German Rumpfler right up to what Tesla and Lucid are doing today. Welcome to episode four of Talking the Talk. We've talked about engine cooling. What about cabin heating and cabin cooling, Mike? Hi, Kevin. Yeah, that's right. Cabin heating and cabin cooling, they're actually different systems to the
1: engine cooling or engine heating. So if we think that we as humans, we operate in a temperature range of, let's say, minus 10 to about plus 45 Celsius. We're only really comfortable in a, in a middle range there, about, around 25 degrees Celsius. And then when we get into a car, like a car is a partially sealed steel and glass box, right? So it's not a great environment to put us into. So we don't like it too hot. and We don't like it too cold. But these are different problems for vehicle engineers. So today, we're going to have to tell two different histories or two different stories. So the story of cabin heating and the story of cabin cooling separately. Excellent. Two stories. So where do we begin? Well, this is almost entirely an American story. So if we think of Europe and the US as being the, really the, the centers of car development at the start of the last century, then actually the difference in the geography of those two landmasses actually plays a factor here. So. Generally, if you think of the lower 48 states of the US, and we compare that to Europe, there's a greater temperature range in the US than there is in Europe. So it's generally warmer in the summer and generally colder in the winter. And then as well as that, the distances between the major cities in Europe is relatively shorter than it is in the US. And those two things combined then meant that people were spending a lot more time in their cars driving in the U.S. and in a wider range of temperatures. And that put a much greater demand
0: uh, onto vehicles to have um, comfort in the cabin. Right. So I can see how the variances is in the U.S. because the continental landmass made such a difference. So let's start with the heating story.
1: Right. So with heating, um, we've often talked about how the, the first cars were like carriages, were like tri- horse-drawn carriages. So actually heating at first was just jackets and blankets and hats. That's That's all people had. And then they started to bring in um, gas burners. They started to carry gas burners with them, which was similar to what was happening in trains. People would bring gas burners into trains. The funny thing is, actually, there was a a heating system developed for trains in the late 1800s by a female engineer, which in itself is unusual, a woman called Margaret Wilcox. And she designed and patented a system to route the hot gases from the locomotive engine. Back through the carriages to heat up the cabins, but it wasn't uh, that principle wasn't adapted for cars for for nearly thirty years actually.
0: All right, so which car company adopted it first? It was Ford. So Ford in
1: 1929 on the Model A. So they developed a small cast iron manifold and they fitted it over the exhaust manifold on the engine, and the cast iron manifold fed air into the cabin. And the heat from the exhaust gas heated up the air inside this manifold. So, therefore, it was feeding warm air into the, into the cabin. Now, it's hot air, not exhaust gas, right, to be very clear. Um, but it was, still, it, was, it was it was kind of crude enough. It was just an open, an open vent into the, uh, into the cabin. But then, sort of a few years later, then they upgraded the dash fascia. So, they included a, a styled vent. And it's really the start of where we start to see heating being integrated into the actual dashboard and into the, the controls of the car.
0: Yeah, so it was starting to be built into the dash, right. So, uh, exactly. so, our, so our cool cars like the VW Beetle, they used a similar idea?
1: Yeah, they did. Actually, VW Beetle is a very good example. Um, so the, the heating of a cabin for VW Beetle has a tube that passes sort of close coupled to the exhaust system. So again, it's carrying the air into the cabin and because it runs alongside the exhaust system, the heat from the exhaust system heats up the air in that tube. And that's what opens the cabin.
0: Right. So that would be like, the, that's a heat exchanger as such.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that we call, call that an, an air-to-air heat exchanger, actually. Um, so a, a heat exchanger is, a radiator is a heat exchanger. So a radiator in your house is a heat exchanger. So it's, it's transferring heat from one medium to another. So a, a radiator transfers heat from hot water into the air around it. And in this case here, it's an air-to-air, so it's transferring the heat from the exhaust gas to the air that's going into the cabin.
0: Okay. So what about the typical system used on, say, a water-cooled engine?
1: Yeah, around the same time that Ford were developing this manifold on the Model A, General Motors were developing heater systems that diverted the hot water from the engine cooling system into a heat exchanger. So in this case, a water-to-air heat exchanger. Um, And that was fitted under under the dash. And they launched it on their more upmarket models, so like the Buick 3060 and the LaSalle 340.
0: Right. So with water-cooled engines then, is the cabin heating system not reduced somewhat by the effectiveness of the engine cooling? Do they not?
1: No, actually. So actually what we're talking about here is... It's really we're talking about the inefficiency of combustion engines, right? So if you think of petrol or diesel, there's an amount of energy in that fuel. And and in a combustion engine, we are trying to convert that into motive power. But it's actually a very inefficient way of doing it. So as a rule of thumb, a combustion engine loses about 30% of that energy as heat. It's just rejected to the atmosphere. Now, that's not good for um, energy efficiency. But what it does mean is that there was always a ready supply of heat for heating up the cabin. And then that basic principle of diverting rejected engine heat into or to, to use for heating up the cabin, that's the same principle we use today for heating up the cabin.
0: Okay, that's, that's most interesting. So the water-based system is still in use today. What would be the changes to these systems?
1: Surprisingly, you know, for a very long time, actually, the changes were just sort of... Component and operation improvements. So, the early cars, the, they were fans. They had fans that were noisy, um, not very effective. You know, lots of noise and not much airflow. And then the flaps directed the air. They often didn't seal very well. They didn't direct the air very well. And sort of into the seventies, then we start to see more of the the adoption of injected molded plastic. And then as that in, uh, improved, then. We sort of get better precision
0: um, of the components in the in the heating system. I'm thinking of our family Fiat One Two Seven, our yellow one, and the heater controls used to stick all the time.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny actually. It's, it's a good it's a it's a good point actually because so that One Two Seven had sliders, right? And, you know, and and you can think of they had three sliders, uh, and they're they're controlling three different aspects. So the direction of the air, the fan speed and the temperature, and actually they're the three elements of cabin heating that have always remained. It doesn't matter how, how it occurs. So whether you're using sliders or rotary dials, and, you know, you can use, use the example of that 127 with sliders. You can come right back up to the mid 2000s and look at a, a mini, the, you know, a, a new type mini that has three rotary dials or sort of something in the middle would be like a BMW 3 series and it's a combination of sliders and dials, but actually they're all very simple, very intuitive, and they're just controlling those those three aspects of the temperature, the speed, and the direction.
0: Yeah, because I'm thinking of my 1965 Volvo Amazon. When you control the heater, the heater is quite close to the wheel, and you, when you pull out the knob, the fastest setting comes on first, and then the slowest setting. So right. it, it's intuitive. It's very clever because you need heat straight away. So modern cars are more complicated with touch screens and digital information systems. So maybe we lost a little bit touch screens over knobs and sliders.
1: Yeah, it's a funny thing. So, like you know, we we think of touchscreens as being sort of the epitome of of modern cars and modern control systems, but we do actually lose something with with touchscreens or with digital screens. So, so the problem with digital screens, whether it's activation or supplying readings, is that you have to look directly at the screen and you have to read the information to understand it. So one of the advantages of an analog control, like your, your Volvo, Amazon, or that Feed127, is that you can adjust the control without looking at it. So you can, you can put your hand out and adjust it. And the other thing with analog gauges, if you think of an analog rev counter or Speedo, is that you can you can monitor and absorb the information just by viewing the relative position with your peripheral vision, whereas with a digital screen, you have to take your eyes off and you have to, you have to read it. So it's one of those things where it's not necessarily better,
0: actually. As you say, not necessarily better. So digital brings us right up to the modern era. In the powertrain cooling episode previously, you showed us how EV powertrain systems use cooling systems similar to combustion engines. So do electric vehicles heat the cabin in the same way? Well, so a moment ago,
1: I talked about the sort of the efficiency of a combustion engine. I said they're not that efficient. They reject up to 30%. Electric motors are significantly more efficient. They can be sort of 95% efficient. Now, it's the converse problem, the inverse problem rather. So where that's great for reducing energy wastage, it means that there isn't this ready supply of heat for the cabin or even for the powertrain. And although the cooling systems in the, the EV cooling system, powertrain system, they do reject
0: heat, they don't reject enough heat that you could heat the cabin from. All right, so how, how do we heat the cabin in an EV car?
1: Well, initially, EVs, um, sort of the, the, the earlier EVs, all relied on electric heaters. So think of the Renault Zoe or the, the Tesla Model 3. So they used resistance heaters, similar to how an electric kettle works. So an electrical current is passed through a, a conductive uh, material, and the resistance of that heats up the material. Um, but just like that electric kettle, there is significant drain on the, enu, uh, on the energy uh, in the battery.
0: Would that be why my electric car would have a less range in the winter?
1: Yeah, it's one of the reasons. So um, th- there's a number of different reasons actually. So cold weather, the, the, the cold weather slows down the chemical kind of reaction in the cells. So that's one reason why there's less range. But also, exactly as you say, so all of those electrical systems that we have running in the winter, so heater, wiper heated seats, they're all um, a significant draw on the power. And that's why generally we see electric cars have less range in the winter than they do in the, in the summertime.
0: Right. So you said initially, what do they use now?
1: So now we see, a, a, you know, an a almost uniform move over to heat pumps. But to tell the story of a heat pump, we actually have to go back to the start. And now we tell the story of
0: cabin cooling. So air conditioning, air conditioning, we use them in buildings, they're used in the u s and particularly everywheres air conditioning. was this then the technology that started to migrate over into the cars
1: yeah in in effect, it was, although it took a it took quite a long time um so. Air conditioning was first used in buildings in right at the start of the last century. Sort of 1902, I think, was the was the first system. But it was almost 40 years before that that technology actually reached
0: reached cars, or you know, was was developed in such a way that it could be applied to cars. Right. So, which manufacturer and which vehicle saw the first cabin cooling system?
1: Yes. Yeah, I said so 40 years later. So it was 1939, and it was the Packard 180. Um, it wasn't particularly successful. It was an option on the car, but it wasn't particularly successful. Um, it was a huge system, absolutely huge. It filled up the trunk almost entirely. Um, and as well as that, it's, it was really complex and it wasn't very effective. And on top of that, it was an expensive option. So the, the retail price of the car at the time was 1,000 dollars, and this option was 300 dollars. So not you know it wasn't a great option.
0: not a great option? Was it a success?
1: Well, it's funny, right? So there's a little bit of the the, the early adopter, you know, the first to market approach. So Packard made a they made a lot of advertising minds out of it, and they did they did sell about fifteen hundred units actually, which you know, in terms of car volumes in nineteen thirty nine, is not bad. And they fitted to a number of different cars, so the the one eighty, uh, the one twenty, the Super Eight, and then shortly after that, then Cadillac created a very similar system on the Series sixty. Um, but there were actually a number of complaints with this one. And I think this one is, it's, you know, it's, it's easy to look back and, um, think that what engineers, the solution they came up with, were, 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 you know, it looks a little bit comical, but, um, the one I was thinking is, you know, in terms of how we think of controls of a car now, this one's kind of a little bit amusing in that, um, they had this, this huge system that was mounted in the boot. but in order for the driver to turn off the system, the driver had to turn off the car, get out of the car, open the hood and disconnect the drive belt. And then when they finally got as far as actually putting controls in the car, they mounted them on the rear parcel shelf at the rear window. So still not that much better than having to get out of the car in the first place. So both of these were, you know, very early attempts, um, not really large and um, successful, and, and they discontinued them sort of in the, in the early 40s.
0: I'll never turn on my air conditioning again without thinking of that of getting out of the car and removing a belt or reaching into the back shelf. Right. So, what made uh, an AC and air, con- air conditioning system difficult to fit? Why is the why it's so complex?
1: Yeah, they they are they're complex systems. So, um, an AC system is what's called a vapor compression system. So. Basically, it, recir- it circulates a refrigerant around the system, and as it's circulating, it expands and it compresses, and it changes from a gas form to a liquid form. And then this expansion and compression rapidly changes the temperature, and that's what allows us to, to extract heat from inside the cabin. So if we want to look at complexity, I'll, I'll go into it in a little bit, you know, yeah. a little bit of detail. So... There, there are lots of components, but we can think of there are four main components. So we have two heat exchangers like we talked about a moment ago. So one of them is a, a condenser, which is mar- usually mounted up front, uh, sort of usually in front of the engine radiator. There's another heat exchanger that's mounted under the dash called an evaporator. And then there's a, a compressor, uh, which is a, a type of pump. And then there's a valve called a thermal expansion valve. And they're, fundamentally, they're the four sort of stage points in that in the circuit of the gas as it goes around. So... The gas enters the compressor pump. It pressurizes the refrigerant gas into a high-pressure gas, and that also um, raises the temperature. So we now have a high-pressure and hot gas. It goes into that condenser, which is mounted at the front of the vehicle. Now, that acts a little bit similar to how the engine radiator acts. So the air is coming from the front of the car. It goes through it, and and it cools it down. So, But where an engine radiator has water in it, this has this high-pressure gas in it and when it when it, when it removes the heat from it it turns it into a high pressure liquid so it's now in a liquid format it then goes through this expansion valve and by expanding the volume of it it reduces the pressure of the liquid before it finally goes into the evaporator so now we have what we would think of as you know it's 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 a, a low pressure um liquid um in the evaporator which is the heat exchanger under, under the dash and then that's that is the point then where the hot air this passing into the cabin um, the heat is extracted by that liquid in the evaporator so what actually goes into the cabin is cold air and at the same time that it does that it's dehumidifying the air and that's one of the reasons why people often think about air conditioning systems as, as being a dry air it feels a little bit drier and that's why it's the the, the the gases it's dehumidifying the air as it goes into the cabin at the same time and then and then so then it closes that circuit that
0: gas then goes back to the compressor again Wow, that's such a, a complex system. That's air conditioning. So two heat exchangers, a condenser, and evaporator, um, and a thermal expansion valve. All yeah. of that needs to be packaged. I don't want it to take up the boot of my car. So how does that yeah, but, all get packaged?
1: Yeah, it's all packaged. But as well as, I mean, as well as those components, there's there's the pipes that run, you know, the gas around. There's the various valves. There's the instrumentation. There's the the, the electric wiring for turning it on and off. So you know, there's a lot going on in that. You know, we're sort of 100 years on or you know from from the first systems being developed or over 100 years on for systems you know and, and all of that developed. we now have systems that are they're neatly contained and they're very efficient, you know and, and they sit in self-contained packages within the engine bay. but well, those very early systems were very large, very inefficient and, and very cumbersome.
0: Okay, so so back to the cars, Mike. Both Packard and Cadillac systems discontinued in the early 40s. And so who then picked up the baton of air conditioning for cars?
1: Yeah, so there was a bit of a gap because of World War II, as we tend to see with all technology developments. And then in 53, Chrysler reintroduced it on the Imperial. And this was actually kind of the first really successful air conditioning system still mounted in the trunk, but considerably smaller. So it didn't take up all of the trunk or all the boot space. Um,
0: And they call it the the air temp. The air temp, it's a very cool name. So when did they then take this system and move it under the hood or under the bonnet, as we say here in Europe?
1: Yeah, right. So, so 53 Chrysler had the air temp system. In 54, General Motors then developed a system that was entirely under the hood, self-contained under the hood. And that was on the Pontiac Chieftain. That was a
0: lot of development in a very short period.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, 53, 54. Again, in 54, um, we have the Nash Ambassador. So this time it's the first car that has a fully integrated reversible heating and air conditioning unit. So in this case now, so up up until now, we have heating systems operating on some controls and we have a separate AC system operating on different controls. And the Nash Ambassador then was the first car where it operated on the same controls so if you requested heat from the system it turned off the ac compressor and opened the vent valve so you now had heat coming from the engine still two different systems but they you know when you turned on one you turned off the other
0: so all manufacturers started adding ac to the cars at this stage
1: yeah, and again, I mean, you'll you see here, Kevin. We're, you know, we're very much talking in and uh, in, in the US. I mean, in Europe, it's just not. There's, there's really no systems happening. But by by the mid to late '50s, nearly all of the manufacturers in the US had it. So, Oldsmobile, Cadillac, Chevrolet, Buick, Pontiac—they're all GM cars. Chrysler had it on, Chrysler's DeSotos, Dodges, Plymouths, and then sort of all the independent manufacturers: Ford, Hudson, Rambler. Packard, Nash and Studebaker. So just, it was just, you know, very common for all cars to have it as an option. And then by 57, Cadillac was the first car to make it a standard fitment on the Eldorado Brown. And, you know, and also at this stage, these are all sort of the the big saloon cars. And by 63, um, the Corvette Stingray C2, which you remember from our aerodynamics conversation was the one that Peter Brock designed. That became the first sports car that had AC. So, you know, it was just this um, sort of ever-increasing popularity of AC
0: in, in the U.S. at this point. In time. So by the early 60s, air conditioning, commonplace in the U.S. So what was the next big jump?
1: Yeah, so you mentioned a moment ago that, you know, the, um, the air temp was a cool name. So that was one of the things... That, a lot of the companies when they invented new systems like air conditioning or new even braking systems, they give them a little sub brand, a little brand name so they could market them. So um Chrysler had the Air Temp. The Nash had an AC system called the Kelvinator, which I think is, is is cool. It sounds like something from my childhood. Um and then later on they came up with the the all-weather eye, which is you know not quite as catchy. Um but in the mid-60s, Cadillac introduced a new system with a name that we still use today, which was the climate control system. And that was a, a sub-branded time. So in this case, what it is, is the AC system is now on a feedback loop. So it's not just supplying temperature at whatever point you have selected. It's now monitoring the cabin and Feed and understanding what the temperature of the cabin is and feeding that back into the system to maintain the temperature um, um, uh, at a standard
0: point. Okay, I think I'm going to have to go with the Kelvinator. That's that's my favorite name. So air conditioning units, that became popular in the US and, and I suppose in Australia because they would have a very diverse climate across the continent. Um, so there would be the volumes of cars which are operating in high ambient conditions, I presume. But Europe, right until the 2000s, air conditioning was generally found, as I remember, only on higher value cars, Mercedes, BMW, et cetera.
1: Yeah, it's exactly right. And, you know, it gives you an idea of just the separation of these two developments. Um, Just one single point to give you an idea of, of the difference, right? So we talked about in the 60s, all of these cars were at least options in the US and in some cases, standard fitting. In '64, Ford, in mid mid cycle on the Cortina on the Mark One Cortina, they introduced a system called the Aeroflow, and they made a, you know they made quite a big noise out of it. And, you know, today people talk about a pre Aeroflow or a post Aeroflow Cortina, and when they launched the car in '64, they made a, you know a, a lot of marketing out of that and made a lot of noise out of it. And yet the airflow system is still really just, it's just a passive venting system. It's not a not an AC system. It's simply just a different set of vents uh, allowing fresh air to pass through the cabin and, and
0: out the other side. Right. So air conditioning is all very well and it does a great thing, but the gases, they're not so good for the environment.
1: No, no. It's the issue that's followed AC all the time is environmental. So from the 50s through to the 90s, uh, the refrigerant gas was used was a CFC, a chlorofluorocarbon called R12. And by the 70s, it was fairly well understood that CFCs were harmful to the ozone layer. The Harrison Radiator Company, now this is the company that, you know, a moment ago we talked about the Pontiac Chief being the first car that had a self-contained AC system under the hood. So that was actually developed by the Harrison Radiator Company. So... They kind of recognized that R12 was, you know, that it was on the way out, or you know, its days were numbered, let's say. So they started doing experiments to see what would be a good replacement for R12. And they identified a different gas called uh, R134A. Then in 87, 1987, the Montreal Protocol was signed. So that's a UN treaty. And it's the UN treaty that, you know, you well remember it's the one that took CFCs out of um, aerosol cans. It took CFCs out of fridges. That's that same same treaty. And it demanded that from mid 90s, from 94, all automotive air conditioning systems had to run on this new gas called or we uh, 134A. Now, Harrison Radiator Company identified it in '76. And it was 20 years later before it was actually, uh, it was actually implemented on the cars. Um, it, it wasn't an easy change. It wasn't just a matter of you know, taking out one gas and putting it in the other because the new gas, it was very aggressive on the ceiling materials and it meant that car companies had to re-engineer, re-engineer all their um, AC systems so, and they had to change components like compressors and condensers.
0: So it was quite, a, quite an expensive change for them at the time. I think we could have a whole podcast talking about why it took 20 years for the, the system to change over. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So in powertrain cooling, you told us that we would talk about heat pumps on electric vehicles and how they in turn linked to air conditioning systems.
1: Yeah, right. So now we're, we're, now we're back to the heat pumps as well. So we talked about it in the powertrain and we talked about it earlier on. So a, a heat pump is effectively an air conditioning system in reverse. So if you take that compression sorry, that vapor compression cycle I talked about a moment ago, and you add in a component called a reversing valve, it means that the system can be operated in the other, the other direction and you can add heat to a system. So Nissan first used a heat pump as an option in 2012 on the Leaf and they used it for heating the cabin and the battery. And now heat pumps are, you know, they're, they're kind of the common source of heat in, in an EV. Tesla used resistance heaters for quite a long time. So right up until the Model, model
0: Y, um, but now Tesla's um, also use heat pumps as well. So the, presumably then a fully integrated heating and cooling system must be on the cards in the very near future.
1: Yeah, that's right. So if you think you now, you know, so it's, if you have this reverse valve, we can run this system in both directions. So that means that we can use this system for adding heat or adding, adding uh, cool, let's say. And where cars are going, are a fully integrated system whereby you can add heat or take away heat from the cabin or from the powertrain system, and they can trade heat energy between the systems. So ultimately, where car companies are are working towards is rather than rejecting wasted heat to the atmosphere, we now now start to think of cooling systems as being a, a heat transportation system. So it moves unwanted heat from one system onto a system
0: that needs it and, and vice, versa, vice versa. Right. Very interesting use then. So I know from your past history as an automotive consultant, you have worked on uh, electric refrigerated delivery trucks that use a similar principle to what you just explained.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I did work with a Scottish company called Sunamp. So Sunamp has developed some very effective thermal energy batteries for industry. And I worked with them for translating that technology into automotive applications. And we developed an electric refrigerated delivery truck where the, the rejected heat energy from the refrigeration system was used to supplement the cabin heating. And the cold energy that was um, created by the, by the refrigeration system was held in a cold storage battery. And the combination of these then had to increase the range of
0: that electric truck By up to 30%. Wow. That has been an extremely interesting conversation. Mike, thank you very much for taking us to cabin cooling. I'll never look at my air conditioning system ever again. Please join us for episode five, where we'll be exploring braking systems. See you soon. Thank you for joining us today on the Talking the Talk podcast. My thanks to Mike Keane, and you can check out his consultancy on mikekeane.ie. Then check out irelandmade.ie to view our back catalogue of videos celebrating stories of Irish transport, past and present. We look forward to welcoming you onto our next episode where we further explore the origins of automotive technology. You can find us on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends. Bye for now.